It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hey, one, what are you reporting? Uh, I got a strange going on out here. Something just killed my dog. Something killed your dog? My dog went flying through the air over the tree. I don't know how it did it. Okay. Damn it, I'm really confused. All I saw was my dog coming over the fence, and Nate was dead when she hit the ground. I didn't see any cars. All I saw was my dog coming over the fence. What are you reporting? Uh, we got someone or something crawling around out here. Did you see what it was? It was. It was standing up. I'm out here looking through the window now and I don't see anything. I don't want to go outside. Jesus Christ, you better... Sure. See up. Hello? Get somebody out here. What's going on now, sir? That son of a bitch is about six foot nine, I don't know. Do you see him now, sir? Yes, I'm looking right at him. Uh-oh. guys and welcome to this week's episode of Sasquatch Pops. Thank you guys so much for joining us for the show. We've got a great guest lined up for you as always, but I want to start by inviting you. If you've had an encounter and you'd like to be on the show, shoot me an email. You can get me at brian at sasquatchodyssey.net. If you haven't already done so, check out the premium content section. Become a member, get additional content each week, get ad-free shows, get all the benefits that come with being a crew member. As I said, we've got a great guest lined up for you guys tonight. He has one of the better stories I believe I have ever heard when it comes to Sasquatch. It's a full-on daytime sighting, and he was actually injured in this account. That's not the great part about it, but you know what I mean. He was out with some of his buddies and encountered this thing on an island. I'll let Jeff tell the story, but it's fascinating. So you guys hang around. You'll definitely want to hear this story. It's definitely one of the more interesting stories. And he's a cool, cool guy. He's got a lot of research projects going on. He's actually doing some research. He's working with Doug Hycheck, who's been on the show, producer and mind behind Monster Quest. So they've got some really cool projects coming up. They're doing with cameras and some other things we're going to talk about. So you guys definitely want to stick around for that. 
I also have a special show coming up on Sunday. I normally do a members-only show on Sunday for the members, which I will do, of course. But in addition to that, I'm going to put out an additional bonus show for you guys on Sunday. So you'll definitely want to come back and check that out. Anybody who's been around the Bigfoot world over the last couple of weeks has probably heard some of the controversy surrounding the Patterson-Gimlin film. I won't go into a lot of detail, but basically, in a nutshell, Richter Riello, some of you guys may know who Richter is, some may not, put out something on Reddit recently in a Reddit thread, feed, whatever there is on Reddit. I've tried to use Reddit. It doesn't work so great for me. But anyway, Richter basically put out a couple of weeks back that he understands that Russell Accord basically admitted that he has a filmed videotaped confession from Bob Gimlin that the Patterson Gimlin film was a hoax. And he said, Steve Coles knows about it, right? The Squatch Detective. Steve's been on the show. So I, of course, reached out to Russell Accord and gave Russell the opportunity for he and Bob to come on the show and talk about it. Well, Russell said he didn't want to add fuel to the fire. He appreciated it. Hopefully he and Bob are going to come on sometime later this month or first of next month. But he didn't want to come on the show and talk about that. So then I reached out to Steve Coles and said, hey, Steve, what's going on with this man? And would you like to come on the show and address this? So Steve did. I interviewed him a couple of days ago. I'm going to put that show out for you guys on Sunday. You don't want to miss that. Clears up a lot of things about the Patterson-Gimlin film. So definitely come back for that show. It's going to be interesting. But we do have an interesting guest to get to tonight. Like I said, we've got Jeff on the line. He's ready to start with his story. So I'm going to stop talking and we're going to get over to our guest tonight. You guys sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So I want to welcome Jeff to the show. Jeff comes to us from South Dakota. He had an encounter up in Manitoba, Canada with a Bigfoot some years ago. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, thanks. How are you? Fabulous, man. I appreciate you taking time to come on the show. And as I mentioned, I know that you had an encounter some years back. So why don't you sort of take us back to where you were, what you were doing, and what happened during your encounter? Yeah, so, you know, I I grew up the son of a hunting guide here in South Dakota and northern Minnesota. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up in a family that really had any, I didn't know anybody who'd ever had an encounter before. So, you know, I know a lot of your listeners probably have had, you know, relatives talk about it and stuff. I never really had that reference, you know, I, I kind of knew the the folklore of bigfoot but i didn't know anybody who'd ever claimed to have seen one or even heard one and uh so when i graduated from high school i had joined the army 
and I wasn't going to be leaving for the Army until the end of July. So that first, that last week in May when I graduated, my, one of my good friends in high school had invited me to go with him and his family, his, his younger brother who was 14, and uh, his dad, two of his uncles, and several of his cousins who were all you know, in their upper 20s. So we were the youngest on the group. And we went, we, where this happened was on Granville Lake as part of the Churchill Reservoir System. It's about 100, 110 miles north of Flin Flon. Flin Flon's right on that Saskatchewan, Manitoba border. So we were, you know, 20, 25 miles on the east, on the Manitoba side of the border. And um, we we had drove up there. I mean, it was it was a long drive from where we live. It was a couple days just driving to get there. The last probably hundred miles when we got north of Flin Flon, about thirty miles. I mean, the the last sixty seventy miles was like driving on a tank trail. I mean, it was really remote where we went. And we drove into this guy that we knew these guides up there that Paul's dad had worked with before. And there was three uh, guides that were native to the area, and they lived at this place year-round, so they were hunting guides and fishing guides. And uh, we had 16-foot aluminum boats with 20, 25-horse tiller motors on them, and the, we were going to be up there fishing for eight days. And the first few days, me and Paul, my buddy, and his younger brother the three of us, since we had all kind of grew up in the outdoors, our parents are comfortable with us being on our own in the outdoors. So the three of us were in a boat by ourselves. And the first three days, we'd go out and fish in the morning and then come back mid-afternoon for a little while. And then we'd go out in the evening before supper. And while we were fishing on that fourth day, um, Paul's brother had to take a leak and he's one of these guys that can't go out of a boat you know so we pulled up on the shore of this little island um and it was probably about i would say maybe 30 acres in size heavily wooded it was a it was a rise i mean when you were on there's a gravelly beach around the edge that we were on and uh, the beach is about 20 feet wide to the edge of the tree line. And while these guys, we pulled the boat up on the shore and uh, I walked over to what appeared to be a game trail. It was about maybe four or five foot wide and it had rained that morning quite just off and on. And it was pretty cool out. The first week in June is when this was. So, I mean, it was cold up there, in the, especially in the mornings. And then by the afternoon, you know, it'd be 70 degrees. But I'm looking up at this game trail, and it rose steeply. I mean, when you looked up at with the birch and the pine and poplars and everything, I mean, it was it was like a corridor that you could see about 15, 20 feet, and then just because of that dense cover, you really couldn't see up it further than that. But it was intriguing to me because, you know, I grew up hunting. Uh, you know, most of my hunting was elk and, you know, deer and things like that. Uh, but I'd been deep in the, in the, you know, out in the backcountry with my 
with my dad and other hunting guides before, so I really wasn't afraid to walk up a trail like this. So I started walking up it, and it was about a, it was steep. I'd say it was like a 30-degree incline. And just with tennis shoes on, it was hard to walk up it. I mean, you're kind of slipping on this greasy, pine needly mud packed down trail. And I, as I was walking up, and I told those guys I was going to walk up here quick. I'd be right back. And I walked up probably about 20 yards up this thing. It took me a little bit of time to get up it because you'd walk five feet and slide a foot or two back and then get your footing again. And while I was walking up, I heard a really loud, like a cracking snap. And I really wasn't sure what, what, what caused that. I mean, it was still, we had really no wind at all out there that day. The water was smooth as glass. And I just stopped because I figured there's got to be a bear here. And I didn't want to walk up on a bear that time of year that may have cubs and didn't, you know. So I just stood still and it came from my left side and I'm looking into the trees and I'm confident that I'm going to see movement of what made this sound because it was close. It felt, I felt like this thing, big popping crack sound was close to me, like within, it was within 30 yards probably. And I'm looking to the left and I'm just stood there for almost two full minutes scanning out into the trees and the dead uh, timber and stuff that's on the ground, waiting to see a head pop up or something. I really was confident I'd see a black bear. And it just was, I just couldn't find it. And so I looked, turned my back and looked down the trail at the beach. And of course, I can't see the beach. I, it's like I say, you can only see about 10, 15 yards through this heavily forested trail and, and because of stuff overhanging in the incline you just can't see forward that far and so i'm looking down the decline at the beach and i can't see the edge of that gravel and i looked it was probably 10 or 15 seconds i was looking downward and as i turned back up the trail i'm staring at the knees of something standing right in front of me like i'm talking 15 feet in front of me because what was standing in front of me was in elevation was probably three foot higher in elevation than I was because of the rise of the trail there. And I've seen the knees and it looked like I was looking at the lower, maybe the lower area of a black bear that's standing on its hind legs. I just about freaked out, but I thought, don't, you know, just hold still. And as I looked up, at the waist level, I seen two huge hands cradling underneath, holding about a five to six foot section of birch tree trunk that that had about a six inch diameter to it. So it wasn't light, you know, and on one end, there was a giant, like a five gallon bucket sized root system with dirt on the end of it. And I see this, and as I'm looking up further and further, I mean, it's like standing under a, a basketball rim trying to look straight up at it, right? And as I rise up and look, as soon as I seen its face and was, like, making eye contact with it, it took this birch tree that it was holding at its waist level and threw it and just, like, 
the only way I can describe it is if you were to bounce past a basketball or you would pass a basketball to me, how you're not winding your hand behind your body. You're just from your chest forward or your waist forward. You're just pushing the ball away. Right. And that's how it just shuck this birch trunk at me and hit it downward so that it hit me at waist level. And I'll tell you what, it launched me completely off of my feet. I flew backwards, landed on my back, and this thing is diagonally now, this branch is diagonally across my chest. It's under one arm and under my under my right arm, and it's my left leg's wrapped around, and I'm sliding down this mud trail as I'm looking back up. And I could see its legs still, and I watched it jump up and down like twice, and I could feel as I'm falling down this trail, I could feel the ground, just the percussion of these two stomps on the ground was like, I, the only way I could describe it was, would be, uh, you know, like if I walked up behind you and patted you on your back, I could feel the ground that way as I was sliding down. I could feel it actually, the repercussion of it. And it never screamed or whooped or hollered or made any noise it just it just as i slid down i ended up at the edge of the gravel at the bottom of this hill and during this i had twisted my left ankle pretty badly um when i scurried up to my feet i couldn't put my weight on my left foot and i'm yelling at paul and his brother get in the boat get in the boat and they start panicking because I think that they had heard the snap too. And I think they thought that I was attacked by a bear because I mean, Jamie ran to the boat and, you know, at 14 years old, he's, he's just kind of in a panic mode. I mean, he gets in the boat and Paul grabs the nose of the boat and pushes it out into the water. And I'm walking backwards across this gravel beach because I don't want to take my eyes off that game trail. I mean, I really felt like what I had just seen, if I turn my back to it, it's going to come flying out and tackle me. And so I walked backwards, just limping on my leg. It hurt to put even half my weight on it. And I get to the, I walk into the water about a foot and a half deep and just flop myself over the gunwale of the boat. And I'm sitting in kind of the middle seat. And Jamie's back there pulling, trying to get this outboard started, and he and it's not starting. And Paul had been driving the boat for three days. So, I mean, Jamie never operated an outboard motor probably in his life. So, I don't, in retrospect, I don't know if he didn't pump up the ball or use the choke or whatnot, but I mean, he's pulled this thing 50 times and it's not starting out. He's probably got it flooded at this point. Paul's freaking out. He's saying, What was it? What was it? What was it? Jamie is uh, just frantically, I mean, he isn't even looking at us. He's looking back at the motor. I'm sitting there looking at the, where this game trail is because I can't take my eyes off it. And I wanted to tell, it's like my brain's working right, but my body, I can't get, I can't say what I want to say, you know, and maybe that, that shock or the adrenaline dump of what happened. But I, I just, kept looking at it with my mouth hanging open, trying to process what I'd just seen, you know. When I seen this standing in front of me, I went through this. When I got back on the beach and I'm standing there, immediately I'm trying to justify what I, had just happened. 
And, you know, some people, I think, that grow up with that reference of hearing stories or, you know, having relatives that had encounters and stuff, maybe in that position, they'd look at this and say, wow, I just saw Bigfoot, you know. But I didn't have that. I didn't have that history. And so I'm going through a checklist of what I know it wasn't. I'm telling myself it wasn't a black bear. It wasn't a brown bear. It wasn't a moose. It wasn't. And I just, the more I can't come up with an explanation, I think the more I just started to panic about it. But I finally, Paul had told Jamie, he said, you're not going to get that thing started. Get let me get in the boat. And I was yelling at, I started yelling at Paul, just get in the boat, just get in the boat. So Paul jumps in the boat and switches spots with Jamie and he gets back there and starts pulling it and he's not having much luck. And I looked down the shoreline from us about probably 70 to 80 yards away. I see a black bear come running out of the tree line. And it runs down onto the beach and it, it's not even looking at us. I mean, I would, it's, it's walking our direction once it gets to the beach, but it's not looking at us. And I'm thinking this thing's going to look up and see us here and stop and go the other way, you know, but I, it, it just would not take its eyes off this tree line. It's walking towards us with its head 90 degrees to the left, staring at the tree line. Like something had startled it and scared it out of this tree line. And that's when I realized, well, maybe this thing was scared by the same thing that I just had this encounter. And it kept walking our direction. And finally it looks up and sees us. And when it sees us, it starts picking up its pace. Like it just was odd. You know, some of this, when I comment on this, it's in retrospect. It's not what I was thinking at the moment, but in retrospect, I kind of feel like this bear saw us and felt relieved, you know, that there was that there's something that maybe it even recognizes, you know. But it was kind of making its way towards us. And Jamie, he's Jamie was literally Paul's younger brother was literally crying at this point. I mean, he had tears in his eyes. He was freaking out. And um he just kept saying, what happened? What happened? What happened? And I, I felt like until we're out of here, I didn't feel safe yet. You know, the boat's only 20 feet from the edge of the beach and we're not blowing anywhere. There's no wind that we can't get a motor started. And now that we got this bear getting closer. So I told Jamie, I said, there's a, we had caught some Northern, you know, four or five pound Northern pike that morning that we had on a stringer. And I told Jamie, I said, get one of those fish off the stringer, hurry up. And Jamie grabbed the stringer and got a fish off and he threw it up on the shore. And this boat, this bear walks right up. I mean, he's only 25 feet from the front of our boat now. And it's not a full grown bear. It's probably two years old. And it reaches down. And that's when I realized it's missing its right paw. And it's not a recent injury. It looks like maybe it was caught in a trap at some point right at the wrist. It reaches down and it grabs this fish and like pinches it against its wrist and lifts it up and bites the head off of it and then stares back and looks at the trees as it chomps its head three or four times and swallows it. And it drops that fish and takes off in a sprint. I mean, I didn't even know a bear could move that fast back in the direction that it had came from 
like it was getting out of there. And I told, finally, Paul gets his motor started. And I, and I was just screaming at him. I said, get out of here. We got to get out of here. Because whatever made this bear run away was what had thrown this log at me on this trail. I just knew that it was still here. And so we backed the boat up until, I mean, he's in reverse, just backing away from the island. <clears throat> and we back out till we're about 80 to 100 yards out. And as we're watching the shore, we watch this thing that threw the log at me. We watched this Bigfoot walk right out onto the beach. Hey, everyone, it's Brian. Do you like saving time? I know I certainly do. One of the ways that I save time is enjoying Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto Meals. Also, there's more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. You can fuel up fast with Factors restaurant-quality meals in just two minutes. They have a wide variety of options for your entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. And one of the best things about these delicious meals is there's no prep and no mess. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat with no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. And Factor meals are flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need as you choose your meals every week. And plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor truly is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. And we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. So head over to factormeals.com slash odyssey50 and use code odyssey50 to get 50% off. That's code odyssey50 at factormeals.com slash odyssey50 to get 50% off now. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. And in probably three strides, it covered the tree line to the water's edge. And when I say it bent over and picked up this fish, I don't mean like me or you would. It didn't go like if I was to pick something like that up, I'd plop down on one knee almost, you know, to grab it and then you'd get yourself up. This thing just tilted its shoulders at 45 degrees and lowered itself down like an elevator, grabbed it in its right hand and just stood straight back up. And it, was, and it held it right in front of its chest, like right in front of him. And it's stare, just staring at us for like 10 seconds, just staring at the boat. And even though we were 80 to 100 yards away, it was mostly cloudy. It wasn't 
like direct sunlight anywhere. There wasn't any glare on the wall. I mean, you could see this, this clear as day. And especially after just watching this bear for like three minutes, we, we knew what, that we weren't looking at a bear. And it stared at us. And after about 10, 15 seconds, it turned around with this fish and walked right back into the trees. And the whole time that this thing, from the moment it walked out from the trees on the beach to the moment it walked away, Paul and Jamie are just yelling, what is that? What is that? What is that? And I just I just felt like I was still kind of frozen, like in shock. I mean, I never said a word. I'm just watching it like, holy crap, this is what threw the log, I'm, I didn't just imagine that I was attacked by something. This is what it was. And it was about nine, nine and a half foot tall, probably is what I would guess. You know, I didn't, it wasn't standing, you know, as it's on the beach, it was kind of in the open. So I couldn't really gauge its height by much, but I could tell that it was extremely tall. And by what I was standing in front of on the trail, even considering the incline that it was standing on above me, it was close enough that when I looked up and seen it, and look, as soon as I saw its face, I mean, I got to see its face for about a half a second before it was like a bomb went off when it threw that log and hit me at the waist level. But it was just, we sat in the boat, and so we just kept backing away further and further, and Paul said, is that what was on the trail that made the sound? And I said, and that's when I told them the whole account of what happened. I said, this thing threw a log at me, hit me in the hip. I said, my ankle's twisted. And as I'm telling them that, I'm thinking, you know, my ankle really doesn't hurt right now. And I started moving it around. Actually, I took my shoe off real quick, pulled my sock off, and was looking at it. And I didn't really have any pain in my ankle at all. And I started feeling like, you know, how did this, how did it get better like that? You know, I mean, I, this thing was, it hurt so bad. I couldn't put half my weight on it. You know, I had trouble flinging myself over the edge of the boat because of how much it was hurting. And uh, so I, I told him all what happened. I told him how I'd injured my ankle. And Paul said, I knew your foot, your ankle was hurt because as you, you couldn't walk. He said, I kept thinking you were going to fall over. I, he said, I was holding the front of the boat, yelling at you, Get, hurry up, hurry up. And he said, I couldn't figure out why you weren't moving fast. And I could tell you were limping as you were walking backwards and sideways. And I said, yeah, I, said, I twisted my ankle when I fell down. So... As we're in the boat, we're talking about what had happened, what we just saw. We, we all kind of came to the conclusion that we had seen a Bigfoot just after. I had went through the whole verbal checklist with them again. I said, you know, I know that wasn't a bear. I know it wasn't a moose. I know I knew what, that that wasn't what was standing in front of me. And when it walked on the beach, it was just confirmation that what I saw, I didn't imagine this thing. I saw it from 10, 15 feet away. And um, so at this point, Jamie is tears in his eyes are like verb, like out loud. He's like whimpering and crying. I mean, he is, he's scared, like really scared. 
And even though we're not in any danger at that moment in the boat, I mean, he just could not get over what we'd just seen here and what had just happened. And Paul, my friend Paul, all through high school, he was happy-go-lucky. He had a joke for everything. He's always laughing at something, you know. And, you know, for him to just be quiet, like, he just doesn't know what to say. And he's just, the whole time, he's just like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe we just saw that. I, and so we started talking about, well, what, let's go back. You know, we were quite a ways away from this guide camp. And understanding this is so remote, we haven't seen another boat all day. Even in the three days, we hadn't seen another boat other than the guys we were that, from his family that were with us. And so I said, let's go back to the guide camp. And Paul says, we got to figure out what we're going to tell everybody and i said well we're just going to go tell your dad what he said no he said no he said they're not going to believe us jeff they're not going to believe us they're going to make fun of us we for the next four days they're just going to act like we're all insane and i said you know i guess as the son of a hunting guide myself i really felt like if this if my dad was here maybe i could tell him you know about what happened but the more we sat in the boat, the more it just kind of occurred to me that I don't know. It, it seems like a good idea up front, but the how long would I have to live for him to look at me and just wonder if I'm crazy? You know what I mean? I mean, I just couldn't figure out how he would look at me and give me the same you know, credibility, even as his son. And I so I started to get where Paul was coming from, where he was feeling like everybody's going to make fun of him. It's not, all of his older cousins are going to look at us and think we're idiots. And so when we eventually got back to the dock, actually we stopped and we fished for another hour or two because we were, we were just trying to put off having to go back and be, a, be around somebody that we felt like, we'd have to tell it to. So as we were fishing for a couple hours, we really came to an agreement, the three of us, that we, we were just going to not tell anybody. And when we went back, understanding we're the youngest of the party, so, you know, every day, midday, when we'd go back, you know, we're the ones that are jumping out of the boat telling the war stories about, you know, we caught this, we caught that, we did and we get out of the boat and we're standing on the dock and we're just kind of quiet. And everybody else is talking about how they did that morning. And I, uh, I, I, I'm a pretty talkative guy. I didn't say a word for the 10 minutes we stood there around everybody. And these three guides were out there too. And, um, as everybody walked away from the dock, one of the guides was just staring at me though. Like, I didn't really know him that well. I'd met him and taught, had little conversations with him while we were there for the first few days. But he walked up to me and said, are you okay? And I, and it just seemed like a strange question, you know, cause I didn't feel like I was giving off any vibe that, that I was injured or hurt or anything. And I said, yeah, why do you ask? And he says, you just seem like you're stressed out or like you're even like you're in shock right now. And I, so I told him, I said, well, something happened to us this morning and I'm still trying to process this in my head. And he goes, did you see something? 
that you, that you're having a hard time with, or did you witness something? I said, no, I stood on a game trail on a little island. We were way up on the north end of the lake, and I didn't tell him what happened. I just said I had an experience out there that I just I'm having a hard time figuring it out. And he and he said, I would like to show you something. And he walks me over by this boathouse, like a shed that looked like it was about 100 years old. And behind this thing, there's an aluminum, 16-foot aluminum boat laying upside down in the dirt with a tarp over it. And he pulls the tarp off, and the whole starboard side of this thing is caved in. I mean, the whole side of the boat looks like you hit it with a car. And I said, what happened there? And he says, well, I was guiding a moose hunter last fall. And my client had shot a moose on the shore of a little island up on the north end of the lake. Now, there's about 10 or 12 islands on this lake. Okay, so, you know, to say I was on an island, it's not like a lot of lakes where there's only one or two islands. There's a lot of islands. And he says, uh, after he shot it, we took pictures with it. It was laying, you know, 20, 30 feet from the water's edge. It was right on the edge of the tree line. And he had brought the client back to the camp there. And he went back to skin it and quarter it out himself. And while he was there, he said he had an experience and was attacked. And he, what had happened was he had skinned this moose and he said, I had one of the hind quarters of the moose in the boat and I was working on carrying the other quarters to the boat and this thing ran up and caved in the side of the boat and just started like kneeing it with its knees and just making this boat just destroyed like Reynolds crinkled Reynolds wrap on that side and it grabbed that court, that hindquarter, threw it over its shoulder, and walked away. And I said, well, "What did you? What did you do?" I mean, he says, "Well, I called my other two guides and told them that I needed their help, and they came out in two separate boats." And he said he was, while well, he was waiting for them, he said, "I intended to tell them what happened, but." when they got there he told them that a cow moose had charged the boat and just like caved it in which typically is what a cow moose would do if you shot you know a non-legal bull i would suppose because moose stay with their the cow for like three years before they leave and those cows are very protective but this was a mature moose this five six year old moose that they shot and he said, you know, I don't know if they believed me. And then when they were packing the meat into one of their boats, they realized I was missing a hindquarter. And he said, eventually, I, they started asking me questions about what really happened. And I said, did you tell him? And he says, he says I'm going to tell you what. He says, a lot, there isn't going to be much good that's ever going to come from sharing what happened if, if something like this happened to you. Because even people who are close to you won't, unless they have had an experience, they aren't going to get it, right? They just don't. They just, 
as much as they want to believe you, he says, I don't think people can process this. And he says, so try my, my advice would be try to uh, enjoy your next four days. And he looked down at my shirt and seen I had blood on the bottom of my shirt by my left hip. And he said, are you injured? And I said, well, I had sprained my ankle really bad, but it, do- it doesn't hurt anymore. And he said, well, you're bleeding. And that's when I looked down and I pulled, I was wearing sweatpants and I pulled them down and could see that my left hip was scraped about, uh, about the size of your handprint. It was just scraped down my hip where this log had hit me. And when I lifted up my shirt, I mean, it looked like Mike Tyson punched me in the stomach twice. I, the left and right sides of my abdominals were just already turning black and blue. And I, he says, just, he says, do you need, do you think something's broken? And I said, no. And he checked me out a little bit and said, I think you're all, you're going to be okay. And I told him what was standing in front of me, threw a log at me and hit me. With it. And he, and he didn't have a doubt in his mind. I mean, I was still a little reluctant to tell him that detail. And he said, what island did this happen on? Now, on the map that we had, there was a larger island to the east of this island that we were on. That On the map, it said the name of that island. It said Patton Island. And the little one on this map that we had in our boat doesn't have a name. So I just told him it was on Patton Island, thinking at least he'd understand where we were on the lake, right? And he looked at me and said, yeah, he says, my experience was near there, but it was on the island that's west of Patton Island. And that's, uh, it just, my, I just, my heart just all stopped when he said that. I thought this could be the exact same thing that did this to this boat that's in front of me. And so I never told Paul that I had talked to the guide or about the conversation I had with the guide. We just tried to finish out our next few days of fishing and, Eventually went home and eventually I went into the army and I just really worked hard at, you know, not trying to come up with more answers, just kind of try to almost go numb to the whole encounter, you know, and Paul's family owns, owns a business that I go into about once a year. I'll pop in there and I'll see Paul there. Even to this day, I'm 53 years old now. This happened in the first week of June in 1987. And I'll see Paul. In the last few years I've seen him, I I remember about three years ago, I said to him, I said, you remember that fishing trip that we were on in Canada? And he says, yeah. And I says, you ever think about that much? And he says, I do my best to, to never think about that. And that's when I realized he probably never did tell his dad or anybody else about it. You know, I mean, he just. Hey, everyone, it's Brian. Do you like saving time? I know I certainly do. One of the ways that I save time is enjoying Factors delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto Meals. Also, there's more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up 
and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. You can fuel up fast with Factors restaurant-quality meals in just two minutes. They have a wide variety of options for your entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. And one of the best things about these delicious meals is there's no prep and no mess. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat with no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. And Factor meals are flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need as you choose your meals every week. And plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor truly is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. And we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. So head over to factormeals.com slash odyssey50 and use code odyssey50 to get 50% off. That's code odyssey50 at factormeals.com slash odyssey50 to get 50% off now. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. In the in, at the business, when I asked him about it, I mean, his mom was working there. She wasn't far away from us. One of his uncles works for the business. He was on the other side of the business, and you could just tell Paul just did not want to talk about it. Like, like, do not, do not bring that up. Yeah, I think that happens and, to a lot of people, man. I, I think they they have those encounters, and you, you go one of two ways. It either spurs you on to find answers and you eventually share your story or there, I think there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of these sightings and encounters that happen around the country that we never hear about that people take to their grave because they don't want the ridicule factor. They don't want to be called crazy or whatever the case may be. So I think that's, it's a very unfortunate part of what happens during these encounters. Well, it, and it changes you because, I mean, I, it didn't stop me from being an outdoors person. I mean, I, but it changes the way that you view the environment you're in. I mean, whether or not I've got my family and we're camping at a campground that's not really that remote. I mean, when I'm walking down a hiking trail or when I'm in a boat looking at a shoreline, I mean, you just view your surroundings differently now. And even when I'm in the deep in the backcountry, I mean, if I'm elk hunting in Wyoming or something, I mean, like where you're way off the grid, it's like you walk around with the sense that th this environment that I'm in is not, it it's different, that there's, there are the, this isn't something I imagined. This isn't something that I've just read about. I mean, I, I've 
I, in the last few years, I've found some groups on Facebook that I've read different encounters. I've went through the, almost the whole BFRO library reading about encounters. And, you know, these people that have these encounters, I mean, they know what they saw. A lot of them are, are a little sketchy because they see it from a distance or whatever. I mean, but these people that have found themselves like I did, where you're 15 feet away from something that you that you've never seen before you can't go out into the woods or anywhere without seeing the environment around you so much differently now yeah and i want to go back to your sighting and and since you were so close can you describe i know it was a very quick thing before the thing threw the log at you but can you describe what the face looked like was it more human was it more ape-like can you give us some description about that yeah, so, um, you know, going back to talk about when I was looking down at the beach, when I turned around and realized this was standing on the trail in front of me, one of the things when I look back at this that was really surprising to me was just how stealthy it had to have been to wherever it was when I was searching that area, whether it was behind it, you know, a pile of, of trees or there was a set of there was one bunch of cedar scrubs there was a bunch of cedar scrubs that weren't far off and if it was behind that for it to put place itself on the trail right in front of me i mean i it you didn't hear a thing and it was still it was just deafening how quiet it was and when i looked up and seen its face even though it was just for a moment it was just like a snapshot that was just ingrained there. Like, I, I can still see it. Its skin around its eyes and nose was very dark. It's, it's the hair that was on it was like dark chocolatey colored, almost an auburn hue to it, you know. And uh, its nose wasn't really flattened out like you would think an ape would be, you know like with gigantic nostrils, it was upward turned on the bottom. But I mean, it wasn't like teaspoon sized nostrils flaring out at you, you know? It looked like it had human elements to its nose and even its eyes. And um, its mouth, the its bot, it was kind of interesting because its mouth the top lip was very tight to its teeth. Like, uh, like if you were to grin really big right now, how tight your lip is to your teeth. It was, its top lip looked straight as an arrow, but its bottom lip was curved open, like sagging down. Like its jaw was half open and its bottom lip was like, kind of like hanging forward, almost like, I tell I told uh, a research buddy of mine that it looked like when a bear is trying to wind you, you know, they kind of curl their lip open a little bit, like they're trying to scoop air up to their nose. Its mouth just kind of sl- just hung open as it looked at me, and it didn't have an aggressive look. It didn't look like uh, like something that would be attacking you, you know. But it definitely didn't appreciate that I had 
made that eye contact with it because I mean it didn't stand there for a moment before it threw the slide. It's like it, it as I looked up its body as soon as my eyes landed on its eyes, boom, it went off. And um, I don't know why it didn't make vocalizations. You know, you hear people say, "Oh, you know, it yelled at me or it, it whooped at me or whatever." Um, it didn't make any audible. The only audible thing I heard from it was as it threw this log, it was like, like that. Like it was exhaling hard as it, as it just tossed this log downward at my waist. But, you know, as far as the characteristics, I can remember. And then I also remember when it was on the beach that as, as it held its arm out, to its side when it went down to pick this fish up you can see the hair hang down off its arm it looks like when you see leather coats that have fringe that hang off of them you know from the 70s and 80s it looked its hair just kind of hung down like it had to have been you know eight inches or longer just as it draped off of its arm but there was one area where it wasn't that it looked matted and also, it's, there were areas on its legs that looked matted down. The hair didn't look like it was a flowing look to it. And I, the only thing I can think is it was so wet and it had been raining. Maybe parts of it, maybe parts of its fur was wet and, and matted down because of that. Could you give any estimation on the weight of this thing? Because that's one of the things that when I talk to people that have had pretty decent close-up encounters, that's one of the things that they say is you, you just can't fathom, you know, something nine feet tall or eight and a half, nine feet tall yeah. is huge, but you just can't well, describe the girth. Do you, do you have any idea on how much this thing might have weighed? What really bothers me is that I didn't look at its feet. I mean, when I turned around and was looking at eye level, I looked at it. I seen it right at the knees. And, of course, my my reaction to that would be to want to look up and see what it is, not look down and see what its feet look like. So as I seen it, seen it at knee level, when I looked up, what I can remember vividly is that its size were like the diameter of a five gallon bucket. I mean, its thighs were so freaking big. That's the first thing that when I started checking off, was it this, was it that as I'm like sliding down the trail and on the beach, I mean, I just knew immediately that because of this, the, the girth of its thighs, that this thing was gigantic. I mean, its thigh was bigger than my waist. And as I looked upward, I mean, the width it is at its hips, all the way through its midsection, all the way to its shoulders, there is no hourglass to it. I mean, it is just extremely wide as I'm looking up its body. So, you know, in estimation for weight, I mean, I, I'm not a big brown bear hunter. I haven't shot you know, an eight or nine foot grizzly has been in front of one to, and said, oh, well, I know that that weighs, you know, 900 pounds or 1,100 pounds. I, I don't really have a lot to draw off of that, but I can tell you that at, because of the size of its size, if you told me that this thing was over 1,000 pounds, I would, if that was the over and under, I'd bet over. Yeah, that's one of the things that, that has always fascinated me is the, the weight and the 
mass of these things. You know, that's one of the things I, I had. I talked to Ken Walker from Big Fur, the Big Fur documentary last night, and Ken was talking about doing his estimation of weight and height, you know, from the Patterson-Gimlin film. And he was talking about how large, like, Patty was in the film. and She's like 28 inches wide at the waist. And he literally was on the phone with me last night measuring himself, and he's like 15 inches wide. So she's huge, yeah. you know, and he, he estimated the weight at, you know, more like 12 to 1,400 pounds because of that and the muscle mass. So... I always like to ask that question. Your, your encounter is fascinating because as many encounter stories as I've taken, I've never talked to anybody who's had such an aggressive encounter where you were actually injured. This thing literally threw something at you and hit you from you know, 10, 15 feet away. And you sort of answered that question already, but just in retrospect, and I know it's obviously speculation, do you think it was the eye contact that you made that pissed this thing off to the point where it threw this log, or do you think it was more of a reactionary thing? What What, what is your thoughts on the aggressive behavior? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I've had about 34 years to try to analyze <laughs> this, and I have quite often, you know, trying to figure out what did I do to end up in that position right and part of what i've come up with and this is there's some research i've been doing out in the field myself now the last few years is that the interesting element to it that i think really contributed to its action its reaction to me was that it was on an island i think that really plays a factor here because I think there's a good chance that had this been the shore of the mainland, that this thing simply would have retreated back into the, you know, the wilderness and never had a confrontation with me. But for whatever reason, whether it uses this island as a hunting ground or whether it tries to habitate there all the time, um, I it. It's not like it had a lot of places it could run to. It's a fairly small island. It's, like I say, 30 acres. If we, if you lined up four guys at 50 feet, of, 60 feet apart and just did like a deer drive from one end of it to the other, it, what would it do? It couldn't go in, right? It's going to end up on, a, on the far end shoreline. And, you know, it, whether it's able to swim or whatnot, it's going to be vulnerable, because of how small this island was. And so I think that it, you know, that flight, that fight or flight type choice that it has to make, I think more often than not, uh, Bigfoot will make the flight choice rather than the fight choice. I mean, if that's a viable option, I believe they'll always choose that, right? They'll, they'll simply slip back and not even let you know it was there until you leave. And if you don't leave, then maybe it will, you know, audibly try to scare you away. I think when it had a choice that, you know, it could audibly either, you know, try to chase me away that way, or it could simply um, just make itself seen, right? And so it stepped out on the trail and it's holding this log and probably felt like I'd run away at that point. And I didn't, I just kind of stood there in shock until this thing I think when I made eye contact with it, it's it just instinctively it threw the log at me. I think that's why it was holding the log. Like, I'm going to throw this if I have to. Because the truth is, when I walked up that trail, 
at any time it could have just swung that log out and cracked me right in the side of the head and I wouldn't have seen it coming. And it didn't do that. It's like, like it stood in front of me, like giving me a chance to retreat before it actually threw this log. So I think some of that is, you know, I don't think I did anything to trigger it or piss it off, so to speak, other than just that I was there and I wasn't leaving. And it felt like it didn't have anywhere to retreat to because the island's fairly small. I guess that makes sense. That, that sort of pure animalistic behavior, you know, if you corner an animal and it, it doesn't feel like it has much of a choice other than to fight rather than take flight, that's what it's going to do, clearly. And I think these things are definitely animals, and I think they're definitely apex predators. So, When you look at, you know, all the encounters that are either logged in VFRO site or anything like that, I mean, you've got let's say 3,500 encounters that are recorded, right, over the years. And a percentage of them are Class A encounters, a large percentage of them. But yet, um, you know, those are people that were at whatever they were standing in front of, it chose to make itself known that it's there, you know. Or it was a situation like mine where it didn't have any choice but to make itself known because of the size of where it was. And maybe, you know, if it's, standing behind a building and can't get out from behind that building and you're looking across somebody's yard and then you see it run away. It didn't have any choice. If it stayed there, it was vulnerable, you know? So a lot of these encounters are based on the fact that it was caught in an area where it's going to get seen or it had no choice but to be seen. But when you think about if it's main goal is to be elusive and not be seen, it's always going to choose to do that. So it makes you wonder out of 3,500 encounters, there's got to be 35,000 encounters or more where you're probably, probably over 350,000 times where there's been a Bigfoot standing by somebody and it chose flight instead of fight. And it just backed away. And these people never knew it was there. People are hiking in the woods all over Canada and the Northwest and the upper Midwest and the Northeast. And, you know, everybody's always out in the wilderness doing something. And every weekend there's millions of people out in the woods. And it's like, well, why wouldn't you have sightings every weekend? Because, you know, 999 out of a thousand times it chooses to simply back away and not let you know it was even there. It knew you were there. You had no clue it was there. It's these rare occasions where you find yourself where it finds itself, where it doesn't have a choice, you know? Yeah, I definitely tend to agree with that. So I know after your sighting, you've started to do some research. Why don't you sort of talk about what type of research you're conducting now and what are some of the things that you're doing and finding? Well, the business that I have, you know, once I hit 50 years old, I've grown my business, um, to a point where I could start stepping back and taking a little bit of time away. And we had gotten a lake home up in northern Minnesota. I've always vacationed up in that area with my family ever since I was young. I loved that Park Rapids, Bemidji, Walker, Cass Lake type area of northern Minnesota. And uh, so got a lake home up there and started really being out in that atmosphere more. 
and uh, you know, out in the woods and s- seeing a lot more bear and and being around that, and even met a few people who were into the research of this, and that's when I started finding groups on Facebook trying to. I, I guess it was a renewed interest in trying to learn more about what I had encountered that day. But also a lot of it was that, yeah, I think at 50 years old, when I hit 50 years old, I was like, I don't give a crap anymore. You know, I mean, I, for a long time, I just felt like, man, if, if people that I business clients and stuff, if I tried to tell even friends that I hunt with or fish with, I can't tell anybody this story, right? Because I can't share this encounter with people. They're going to just, they're never going to look at me the same. But at 50, I just kind of started feeling like, you know what? There's got to be hundreds of thousands of people that have had some sort of an experience. And they're all feeling the same way. They're, they feel like I can't tell anybody. And so that really drove me to want to do the research, get into the research and try to figure figure out stuff so that I just think it's stupid that if somebody had an encounter when they're 18 years old, they got to live their whole life trying carrying that burden around of feeling like they need to tell somebody about what happened to them. And yet they, they're fear, they're fearful of doing it. So they don't. And it is a big burden. It's, it's really hard to do for, for, and I think it's a really a lot harder for some people than it is for others. Maybe some people are good at just, I'm going to bury it and never think about it again. But I just had a hard time doing that. And so my goal was, if I'm going to get involved in research, I want to do some type of research that advances the science to help blueprint what this thing is so that people don't have to feel so scared to tell somebody if they had an experience. And so I met. Uh, you know, he lives up in the area that I do, Doug Highcheck, who's been on your show. And I, he's one of the first people I shared my encounter with and told him what happened. And he was just, there's so many different elements that make my encounter different than a lot of them that you hear about that he was kind of fascinated by. And he started talking to me about it and said, you know, there's a lot of encounters that are happening here in northern Minnesota. And him and his son do a lot of research. Started telling me about other guys in the area that do a lot of research. And uh, so we started talking. Uh, well, for first of all, I, I, I love to kayak. And in the winter, I do a lot of snowmobiling. So I was snowmobiling in some really remote areas in that area of northern Minnesota that I have the lake home at. And it's a touristy deal where every little town ends up having a festival every summer. And there's homes all over these lakes that maybe aren't year round homes for people. But, you know, from May through September, I mean, it's like spring break at a lot of those areas. And I can't, what I was looking for is remote areas that were, even in July, there's not going to be anybody here, right? And so I started kayaking some of the more remote rivers. All the lakes in that area, are a lot of them are chained together by rivers. And I started kayaking those areas, started snowmobiling them. And last winter, I found... Hey, everyone, it's Brian. Do you like saving time? I know I certainly do. 
One of the ways that I save time is enjoying Factors' delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto Meals. Also, there's more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. You can fuel up fast with Factors restaurant-quality meals in just two minutes. They have a wide variety of options for your entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. And one of the best things about these delicious meals is there's no prep and no mess. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat with no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. And Factor meals are flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need as you choose your meals every week. And plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor truly is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. And we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. So head over to factormeals.com slash odyssey50 and use code odyssey50 to get 50% off. That's code odyssey50 at factormeals.com slash odyssey50 to get 50% off now. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What I thought was an interesting meadow on a river that was so remote that it was surrounded by big pines and poplars and birch trees. And it just seemed like I made a list of two or three different areas like that that I wanted to go back and try what I call some low-tech research. And And I had this idea that if you were going to try to research this creature, that its biggest vulnerability is its own curiosity. I really felt that way. Like, you know, there's things that sometimes it's just so curious about. It can't help but make itself a little bit vulnerable. And so that's what I was going to start with. And so this spring I started going kayak. I mean, it'd take me two hours to kayak back into some of these areas but I went out in the middle of them and left a, and I had a big red rubber ball, the kind you buy for two bucks at Walmart, you know? And I went out into this meadow and I was throwing this ball up and down and I'd laugh at the ball and I'd kick it and run over and pick it up and laugh at it. And I did this for about a half an hour and I set the ball in the middle, right in the grass and I walked about three quarters of a mile out of there back to the river where my kayak was, and I left. And I went back the next morning, 
and the ball had been moved. And I knew that a bear couldn't move it because it would pop it. I mean, this is just a light rubber ball, you know, it's glossy, smooth. And there were some smears on it. It had been moved about 60, 70 yards across this meadow. This meadow was about the size of a football field. And uh, so I thought, well, this is interesting. You know, I'm going to start. I, I had done that in a couple different meadows. This is the first one on my list that it, I'd actually had something moving. And I knew it wasn't a human. I mean, I am so far out in the middle of nowhere. There's, I'm five miles from the nearest gravel road, you know. And so I started considering that as be the area that I wanted to research. So the next time I took the ball, um, I had put some Velcro tabs on it some one-inch square Velcro tabs, about a half dozen of them. And I went out and played with the ball again for about 45 minutes. And I left it laid in the meadow, went back to my kayak, and I kayaked out of there. And I was showing up. I, this was the second time. Now, I, the first time I showed up on a Thursday morning, about 10 in the morning is when I left the ball, and I went back on a Friday morning at about the same time to pick it up. So I thought, I'm going to start doing this every Thursday and pick it up every Friday. Because if it doesn't live in that area, so to speak, if it's just, if this is an area that it hunts in or forages in, <clears throat> maybe I could become part of its routine. You know, like wherever it is, 20 miles away, 10 miles away, maybe it would get to where every Thursday it knows, go to that meadow, that ball's going to be there, right? So I started doing that, and the second time it didn't get moved, I thought about not putting it out in that meadow again, but I did. And the third time I went back, it had been moved again, and I was looking at the Velcro tabs, and I realized that I had two hairs that were caught in these Velcro tabs. And they were one of them was about eight inches long, and one was about nine and a half inches long. Very silky, very fine. And um, light colored, uh, th they seem to change colors. It like looked clear in one section of it, and then it looked kind of a little bit more of a brown in a section, and then kind of a blondish look. It was really weird. <clears throat> and so I put these in a plastic bag, in a Ziploc, went home, and talked to Doug Hijack, and I was emailing him and we were talking on messenger on facebook and i said told him about i found these hairs put them in a plastic bag he says dude he says you got to put them in a paper envelope store them in paper not plastic you got to keep the dna right on them and so that we can test them and so i started carrying envelopes with me rubber gloves stuff he was telling me about some other things that he had, had been having success with, with peanut butter jars. And I said, okay, so I should put a jar of peanut butter out there and just leave it there. And I, he said, yeah. And I said, with the lid off. And he says, no, these things love to unscrew lids and screw them back on. And I was like, what? He goes, trust me, just try it. So the third trip out, I put the ball out with a jar of peanut butter with the lid screwed on and went back the next morning on a Friday morning and the ball had been moved. The peanut butter jar was laying there, the lids off of it. 
and the lid wasn't screwed back on it, but this jar was empty. And it looked like you had just made the jar an hour ago. I mean, it was so clean. There was no, there wasn't any peanut butter residue in it, like you'd ran it through a dishwasher. And so I, I was really excited. I mean, the whole two-hour trip kayaking out of there, bringing the ball home and the empty peanut butter, butter jar, I get home and I called Doug and I said, the jar was empty. And he says, did it look like it went through a dishwasher? And I'm like, how did you know that? And he says, that's what ours look like. When we get, when we find them, if they get opened, they're, they're usually clean. And I thought, well, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So when I started talking to Doug about this research, I said, look, I don't want to try to photograph it. I don't want to try to trail camera. I just think that's a low success, high tech strategy that just doesn't produce any, any really good, whether it senses IR, whether it senses, um, motion detection, you know, sensors. I don't know, but it, you know, people just, you look at how many game cams are out there and we just don't get really good footage from them. So I said, I don't want to bring technology in this. And he started preaching to me about kind of mentoring me on what hasn't worked. And that kind of guided my vision for this research. If I was going to keep doing this, that I want to focus not on what works, but what doesn't work and, and try to eliminate those elements. And, um, you know, because you can go out in an area and scream or whoop and get a whoop back, let's say, but, and that's cool. I mean, it's a great experience, right? But I kind of feel like I've already had a great experience. I mean, it doesn't really advance the science. The only thing that's going to advance the science is DNA. we got to do something to get DNA. And if I'm going to leverage this thing's curiosity to try to collect DNA, I've got to make it appear that I'm visiting this area and I'm leaving things and I'm giving it a 24-hour window to explore whatever I leave on its own terms. It feels like it's in control. And then it knows that I'm going to come back in 24 hours because that's the routine I'm setting. And I don't look at the tree line. I don't call out to it. I just pick the stuff up and leave. And the next week on Thursday, I go put stuff out. And now each week I've been integrating a new element into what I leave. And I've been doing this for a total of 15 weeks now. And there's only four times that the ball hasn't been moved or something that I leave hasn't been moved. So I know I've become part of this, whether it's one, whether it's a group of them, I know I'm part of its routine. But I've had some crazy stuff happen over this time. I mean, so I guess as I'm talking to Doug, one of the interesting things that happened is he was started talking about when he was uh, studying bears. You know, he was the first one to video bears giving birth and hibernating and stuff. He had planted all these cameras in a hibernation den and things like that. And he said, you know, it's scientifically proven that caribou see in UV vision. And he says, I feel like bears do too, because I've had 
their reactions to UV, like fluorescent colors, really different. And they seem to prefer blue, like fluorescent blue. Like if, if I, there's something in our research that's blue, it moves it, it destroys it, it chews on it. It's like it sees that so much easier. Now, what's funny is my business that I've been in has it involves UV and black light technology. <laughs> so I told Doug, I said, actually, I'm kind of a UV expert. And he goes, what? And I told him what my business was and how we worked with this and my experience with it. And he said, what's the chances of this happening that you know about this technology? And I just have this theory that maybe if bears see in UV, maybe Bigfoot sees in UV. And I said, well, you, what you don't understand is when you say UV, what you're talking about isn't just fluorescent colors. Like every game camera that's made that, that has a hard, durable plastic that's made to resist being chewed on or damaged has a UV element in that coating on the plastic that makes it that durable. The acrylic resin that they use in those plastics to make them hard it has a UV element to it. Every camera lens that's ever been made, whether it's a game camera or a professional video camera, has a UV coating on the lens. So you got to imagine this, Brian. If you can see in UV, when you look out into a tree line and there's a, tree, a game camera that, let's say, is 100 yards away, that lens is going to stand out to you as if it was fluorescent orange and me and you were looking at it. I mean, it's just going to have a vivid surface to it. And it could be that the plastic of a peanut butter jar or the, the um, lenses in the eyeglasses that you wear might be giving off a UV look to it. So... <clears throat> I think he was on to something with that. So I started incorporating that into the things that I leave out there. And so what I started doing is I, I take a game camera, painted the whole thing fluorescent blue, and I don't put batteries in it and power it up. I just leave it lay out there in the field, not too far away from the ball, just on the ground. I'm trying to get it used to that blue color and that game and seeing a game camera and not being afraid of it. And I'll go out and it'll be picked up and carried five yards and dropped. You know, it's something's moved it. I've strapped them on trees before with peanut butter in front of it so that it knew there was a reward. Anytime it sees blue now in anything that I leave, it knows there's something there that's good. So like I'll strap a fluorescent blue game camera to a tree and what i've started doing now is i take little baby food jars that are the label are ripped off of and i put like my kid had a i've got two teenage boys and when they were younger they had a rock tumbler and they would tumble rocks until they looked really shiny and pretty and i'd take a rock and put it in a baby food jar and screw the lid on it and leave it out there now in front of these blue game cameras that are strapped to trees, but they have no batteries in them. And they'll go out and I'll have, they'll open up a baby food jar and, and take it. 
I've had it be where I leave my kayak on the shore. And when I go walk in this last time I was there, I walked into the area, spent 45 minutes playing with the ball, leave the ball, um, put the game cameras back out with no batteries in them. I've tied fluorescent blue flagging tape to one of the trees and smeared peanut butter on the trunk of it. I do. I, I'm just trying to make them comfortable with this fluorescent blue color. Like it's like it's it's it means there's something good and not something bad. And I'm never calling out to it. I'm never trying to interact with it. There was one time when I was walking out of the area about three trips ago, where I on my path that I walk out of, I found a, a bobber, and it was a fishing bobber that was like that orange and it's a plastic one it's small but it's like that fluorescent chartreuse color on top that yellowy looking glowy color and it was like fluorescent orange on the bottom and it was laying right in the path that i walked and so i picked it up and stuck it in my pocket and put left the stuff there and then got my kayak and left and I was telling Doug about it, and Doug says, did you leave something back for it? And I said, no. And he said, dude, they'll get offended if you take a gift they leave for you and you don't leave one. And, and you know, so Doug's kind of been my mentor through this because, I, you know, I was an idiot when it came. I had no experience, right? So now I have little plastic or glass vials that um, I put a little bit of water. I fill them with water and put a little bit of glitter in. And then put a cap on the vial. And when you shake it up, it looks like a little snow globe. And I do that with blue glitter. And I keep three or four of them in my pocket uh, all the time when I'm out there. And so when I when I see something and I feel like, yeah, maybe it, this is something that left for me, I'll pick it up and leave the glitter, a little vial of glitter there. And when I go back, it's gone. The glitter, that vial's gone. And this last time I went in, Last week, I went in Thursday morning. There was two big logs that were laying across the three-quarter mile trail that I hiked back into this area once I pulled my kayak up on the beach. And the logs had been moved off of the trail. One of them I had to step over every time. And one of them was a birch tree that had fallen down across the trail and was propped up against another tree. And it, so I would walk off the trail and walk around it, you know. And both of them had been moved, so they're laying parallel to the edge of the trail now. Like something was trying to make it easier for me to get in there. And so I went in, played with the ball, left the ball, hung the game cams, put up some flagging tape, put out the peanut butter. I mean, I've, each week I start adding something different than I'm doing. And when I walk out... My, I get to my kayak and my paddle, I don't know if you're familiar with kayak paddles, but my paddle had been, something depressed the plunger button and slid my paddle into two pieces. And one was leaning against the edge of the kayak with the blade down in the, in the gravel and the rocky gravel and the other end was leaning up in the air and the other section of it the blade was down in the floor of the kayak and it was leaning up against the seat. And I'm looking at where I pulled up at trying to see, is there footprints here or what? 
and I couldn't see any footprints. Um, just because it was, it's such, it's like river rock, you know, it's like, it's not like uh, fine gravel or something that would depress in. But I seen an area on the beach down the down river for me a little bit that uh, that's where I'm going to start beaching it now just to see if that's happened. But then also my life jacket, I leave it lay unbuckled when I take it off. I leave it lay in the seat. My life jacket was laying on the nose of my kayak. Something and there's a bungee cord on the front of my kayak. Something had picked up, up the life jacket, snapped the three buckles closed on it, and slid it underneath the bungee cord of the kayak. I'm telling you, if we sat on I don't care if it's a Saturday or midnight on a Monday, you can we can sit on that river and you will not see somebody come past it. This is so remote that I'm not saying there aren't people that could be out there, but it's just highly unlikely, you know? And so it, my goal throughout this research was not to try to communicate with it, just go out and do my things. In the course of the Velcro tabs, I've collected now to this date, 11 hair samples over 14 weeks. A lot of times I don't have any, and sometimes I have two or three, but I've got 11 total. And I've also have what Doug refers to as sebum smears. You know, when they touch something, their skin, that waxy coat on their skin, just like we have like a, an oil in our skin, they, they have a more thicker, waxier substance. It's probably protective of their skin, helps protect it. But when they touch something or if they were to touch a n their nose to a glass window, it would leave a waxy smudge. And so I've started leaving a 10-inch piece of black plexiglass leaning against a tree with a, with the peanut butter under the plexiglass, you know, thinking that, well, it will pick the plexiglass up and move it maybe and leave a fingerprint. Because every time it touches the ball, if it leaves fingerprints, I can't see those fingerprints. What happens is, is they turn into smears. I think it takes the ball and holds it under one arm or it walks around with it or it's kicking it through the grass like it's mimicking, sees what I'm doing when I'm doing it. And I just can't get a clear fingerprint that shows, you know, dermal ridges and things like that. But I'm trying. I mean, and every time I have any type of a sebum smear, I Q-tip it and put my rubber gloves on, Q-tip it and put it in, uh, you know, an envelope. And so I've got 11 hair samples and seven sebum smear samples. And my idea was I'm just going to keep doing this and try to just be disciplined enough to just keep trying this low-tech non-communicative um, from my end research where all I'm doing is just collecting from it. It doesn't realize it, but I'm just collecting these samples, right? And I want to get to a point where at the end it culminates to where there will be a high-tech ending to it. One day when I go out there, I'm going to put batteries in all the game cameras and I'm going to leave vo voice recorders and I'm going to Instead of a red ball, me and Doug are working on designing a ball that has 
360-degree camera embedded into the ball that um, can remain powered overnight. And so what I'm trying to achieve is if you look at the Patterson-Gimlin film footage, what's really spectacular about that isn't the footage. It's the fact that they combine more than one Holy Grail type element to what they discovered that day. They had footprints with the footage. You know, whether it's a footprint, whether it's a video footage or a still picture, whether it's a vocal recording or whether it's a DNA sample. Those four different things that you could possibly gain from an encounter, they had two of them with footprints and film footage. That's what makes that so spectacular. Almost every other scientific data that's been collected has only been one of those, right? So, and you know, if you if you're subscribed to the Todd Standing uh, experiences and research that he did. He's got what he claimed to be the footage and the still pictures combined with footprints and things like that. But it'd be one thing if at the end of the summer I had a catalog of 11 hair samples, seven sebum smear samples, and we're going to go pay to have these analyzed. And what I, what the goal is, is not to have a lab analyze it and say, well, it's uh, an unknown primate and they just keep quit looking there. You know what I mean? Eventually we have to establish a database of, okay, it's not something we know about, but sample one matches sample two and sample one and two matches sample 17 and samples, you know, eventually we're going to establish a collection of DNA assuming it's coming from the same creature where they, they match each other. They might not match what you consider to be part of your library of known primates, but these do match each other. And, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I don't have a degree in that. I'm just a citizen researcher, you know, a citizen scientist as Doug would explain, but he's adamant about, developing a DNA library uh, that if you could collect 10 samples from 10 different creatures, you would have undeniable proof that you have something there. You know, it's not just something that's not a known primate at that point. You know what I mean? And that's one of the things that I love the most about Doug Hycheck is he thinks outside the box and he looks at things from a completely different lens most of the time. And I think some of the things that you're doing are fascinating, man. And I, I hope you stay in touch with us and, and share some of the things that you guys find. And I, I talk to Doug quite often and bounce information and, and send him pictures. And uh, one of the guys here in North Carolina recently got some hair samples and I reached out to Doug and he put me in contact with somebody that hopefully we're going to be able to send those to. So please stay in touch with us, man. And any evidence that you guys get and any discoveries that you guys make, I hope you'll come back on the show and share with us for sure. Yeah. Over the weekend here, Doug was speaking up in Duluth, Minnesota at a, at a conference. And while he was there, he sent me, he, he texted me and said, you aren't going to believe what just happened. He said, I'm standing at a booth talking to somebody 
And I've, first of all, Brian, I've never really been into the paranormal, the parapsychic type part of Bigfoot. I mean, I get that there's a lot out there, but I've just been kind of narrow-minded on the research that I'm doing and Doug's doing. But he had this lady come up to him, hand him this six-inch long, fluffy, fluorescent blue state-colored feather. And she said, I don't know why, but I've been, I'm a paranormal expert and I've felt compelled that I need to give this to you and you'll know what to do with it. And Doug sent me the picture of it and, and told me what had just happened. And I said, you need to mail that to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, 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 what's great is that you, Doug is a person that he's really adamant about people like myself or anybody else who's trying to go out and have an experience that he's there for them. If you have questions, say, what should I do with this? How, how should I react to this? Or this happened to me. What do you make of it? He wants to get involved. He wants to help you get a sample. And he's very approachable. I mean, you can find him on Facebook, send him a message. He says, that's why I have a Facebook account so people can find me. I mean, everybody who's trying to do something like this should have a mentor and not just go at it like you're killing snakes. But I mean, take a balanced approach this and slow it down and figure out what's the best way to get a result considering the environment that I'm doing this in. And I'm hoping that more people can learn that from what I'm doing. I'm not saying I'm doing something right or I'm doing it wrong. I just know that I'm doing it different than most are. Well, that's awesome. And I think that it, you've got one of the best mentors in the business and Doug Highcheck. He's one of the best and, and he's never failed to answer a text from me or a phone call or a Facebook message. He's always been there and he's always had great ideas. He, he'll he be the first to admit, I may be wrong, but this is what I think about it. And yeah. we, we kind of go from there. Fascinating yeah. stuff, man. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing. And we'll definitely have to have you. Me. We'll definitely have to have you back. Yeah, I look forward to it. Awesome. And that's it for tonight's show, folks. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you guys next week.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.